Well, last night as I was trying to drift off to sleep, as I am wont to do, my brain started uh, churning, and I started thinking, hey, what about the Open tomorrow? And I built up this fantastic argument of, uh, you know, talking about Afghanistan and where we are as an imperialist nation, and uh, I got so hot and bothered that I stayed up very late because I couldn't fall back asleep. My blood pressure was too high <laughs> from this imagined, like, me yelling into a microphone. And I have since forgotten everything I came up with. So uh, just no, not good, I guess. I don't know. What's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything? Like kids with Dakotas discover the I just, I personally, I'm really defensive about this. I'm real sensitive about it because mm -hmm. my, you know, nationalist identity has always been wrapped up in upholding the greatness of the American empire. Mm -hmm. And so now that it seems like the empire is falling, like, obviously the correct thing to do was to, uh, you know, stay and continue to fight and give more money to preserve the empire that would make me feel less guilty about the empire falling and having these empire you know pro-empire sentiments so that's my <laughs> right yeah you've got an uncle or something right <laughs> no it's like the most annoying thing of of all of this the afghanistan stuff is just the uh there's no uh there's there's no honest takes. There's no uh, un, unencumbered, unbiased takes, especially from an American perspective. Like, everyone had been making so much money off of forever war that everyone's incentive is to continue that apparatus, which is basically, like, running a separate, you know, global corporate operation <laughs> yeah and uh you know, so everyone's real butthurt about losing the benefits of of maintaining that war and thus you know using it as a justification to like uh wash all of their uh pro-imperialist ideas out there and say it's not that i'm pro-imperialist it's just because i really care about the women <laughs> In Afghanistan, they're going to have to, like, wear burqas again, and I'm real upset about that. <laughs> like, that's not what you're upset about, man. <laughs> no. <laughs> you, you, were murder, you were murdering those kids, whether or not their moms were wearing burqas or not. It didn't matter <laughs> for 20 years. Now, all of a sudden, oh, yeah. no, my checks aren't going to clear anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it really—I mean, it was known, but— uh I mean, the U.S. military is, was just there 
to make money for defense contractors and their cover was we're freeing these towns from the grip of the Taliban control. Whereas their control was they were just taking the poppy from the farmers and now they have to buy the poppy from the farmers to make heroin to make money. So it's it was still protecting the cycle. Um, and you can't pretend to think that the U.S. military intelligence didn't know that. I mean, the mm. CIA is so deeply involved in the global drug trade anyways. Yeah. Um, that, this reminds me of a tweet. <laughs> it was like, nothing will make you sound more insane than knowing like three things the CIA has admitted to doing. <laughs> like, it, you know, like it sounds crazy, but they, they do do that, you yeah. know? Uh, so it's just kind of like they understood that this is all working together. And, hey, America's like the market, you know? Like they're, that's the U.S.'s, at, they're the shining light on the hill that's like just a neon sign saying open because yeah. they understand market forces quote unquote so they obviously understand the global market for drug trades um so it was just failed to begin with and i think the thing that this is kind of what i was thinking last night is anybody who like was in the military uh and is feeling maybe betrayed or whatever they shouldn't be angry at the Taliban so much so as the people who were in charge of them there who are putting all of these kids over there and their mission is to protect global drugs and to kill poor black and brown kids it is that's the thing about war is you're not going to fight the leadership the leadership of both sides go and have you know meetings together (laughs) it's you're going and killing poor people so be frustrated at the people at the top that decided to continue to push this um, and continue to try and push war in other places yeah and I I would say ultimately my point of view on the whole deal whether we're talking about Afghanistan or Iraq or or Desert Storm or you know, let's just keep going back to all the wars that have been going on since I was born. Um, the I would have a lot more respect for it, and I would at least be willing to have the argument in like Congress about doing these things if it wasn't this faux, uh, we're going to you know, spread democracy and outsource capitalism through these occupations type of fake, fake version of it. And now, you know, you get the back end fake version of why we're so upset about it. If, if we want to be an empire, like if they're the pro imperialist idea of America is out there, then make the case that we need to go and take these countries for our empire's interests we're not just going to go there and be like a third party observer that's going to help some other military or prop up some puppet government. We're going to take that and Afghanistan is going to become the 51st state. We're going to take Iraq and Iraq is going to become the 52nd state. And like at least that has 
an underpinning of a little bit of an honorable, like you're, you're being upfront with what your intentions are. And then we can, you know, adequately have an argument about, about that instead of having a pretend argument that you really care about the rights of Muslim women. Like that's not the argument that anyone has ever had about it. Um, right. So, you know, that that's always sort of been my in the back of my mind thought, especially when you really look at history and you go back, you know, thousands of years through all the conquests and the way that armies were used to expand empires from Rome and Egypt and <clears throat> the Assyrians and everybody like there is something at least to be said where if you're the empire that goes in and then takes control of an area then all of those people become citizens of your country and become part of the empire. Then at least you have now taken the moral responsibility of these people are now just like the people from the the origin land, and we're going to call these people now also citizens, and everyone is going to be part of this citizenry umbrella, and we have a responsibility mm -hmm. to take care of these people too. But if you don't do that, and you do this faux imperialism, you're, you're dropping the ball on, like, at least the one bit of responsible humanitarian stuff you could do as an empire. <laughs> you're, you're, you're just abdicating that level of responsibility as well. So what it's, if, it's sort of the, the, the worst side of everything, <laughs> doing it the way well, that we do it. We could just make it a territory instead so you don't get the rights, but you still get, you know, the control. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, just make it a colony, and then you know, yeah. for make them all pay taxes, but don't give them any rights. Well, I mean, it's it's very clear. I I feel like we're probably preaching to some of the choir just because it's like obviously the people who are so pro this uh, war and now wanting to go back there because oh, Afghanistan's sitting on minerals. Um, it's they would not want it to become a state. They don't want that culture to be incorporated into America. They're against all of those people. They just pretend <laughs> right. to care whenever they lose. And that's the thing about it is they lost. <laughs> they are losers. So it's not anything to start pointing the finger at, well, if Trump had done this or Biden did, it's like, it's all of them. <laughs> they're all <Yeah>. bad. <laughs> they, they are not good people. Um, once you get to that level, like the, you know, as I'm reading the book that we read for this one, I was also listening to a podcast, um, maybe also by Matt Chrisman. Maybe I listened to a lot of his stuff, <laughs> uh, but he Just was a covering Matt Chrisman disciple over here. It, it, it's, Please, I would be so honored. Um, You're an he, apostle, actually. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Get it right. Uh, he has been covering the book Black Jacobins, um, which is what the publication is named after Jacobin, not the French Jacobins. Right. Um, but it's a very interesting book. And the point at the end that he's kind of drawing together is like, France wanted to take over North America, and uh, the only reason they didn't is because the English had already taken over so much of North America, which was still smaller than the amount that the French held. Um, 
But as Matt describes, the British were better at being lizards. They were better at not caring about people. They're the mentality of colonialism from the British perspective um, was formed during the uh, English Civil War where it was, as he describes, QAnon won. It was people who were like, we need a king who is going to bring heaven on earth mm-hmm. versus the French being their French Revolution, which we've spoken about, not perfect, but at least the ideals stated were liberty, brotherhood, and uh third thing <laughs> <laughs> fraternity <laughs> Frater- that's brotherhood yeah <laughs> uh, i can't remember um so it's kind of like all of america is also kind of coming from the british lizardness the ability to just be like no we're going to be subservient to this uh this non-human sort of market control and having people be that uh, we don't call them slaves because we pay them but they have to work for all of these things it builds out this entire system where imperialism doesn't work the way you're describing that it could be in some sort of quote-unquote honorable fashion to even like say the USSR, like the Slavic nations, they're like, well, there are Slavs that live there that want to be freed from that control and want to be a part of us. So we will now make them a Soviet state. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not even that when it comes to the U.S. because then you have to aid these people. You have to have a mentality of brotherhood with this other you know, nation, territory, people. You'd have to actually do some research about, like, the customs and religions and the way people behave and the mores of the society rather than just going in and being like, look, we're going to blow up a bunch of stuff and we'll give you a McDonald's. And once you get a McDonald's, Mm -hmm. you'll realize, you'll realize how stupid you've been (laughs) for the last 10,000 years. (laughs) It was uh, two days ago I was driving... And I swear to God, I saw a McDonald's with a flag at half staff. The McDonald's flag. <laughs> it was perfect. It's perfect. We, we lost our foothold in Kabul. <laughs> it's <laughs> the just Kabul franchise mwah. fell. <laughs> I loved it. Yes. <laughs> um. It. But it's. It. What's funny is because this ties really well into the book of. Uh. And, uh, we read The River of Consciousness by Oliver Sacks, which Josh will be able to give a better definition of. Uh, but it's essentially like just seeing how he draws the line of like science being there is no original idea. It is built upon your past experience and the past experience of other scientists going back to the beginning of science. It is built upon the beginning of humanity um and some good ideas get lost because they're just not able to connect the dots for people mm-hmm. so immediately to things so it's it's like the perfect book in this time to read i feel because it draws the line between everything's connected like the us imperialism is we're essentially just the british empire <laughs> extending yeah, you we're know we're the hangover 
So it's <laughs> it's not anything that's new, but that doesn't mean that it's it should be around. Right. How's that? Yeah, and like in the in that example, so the the book, uh, the River of Consciousness. It's the last uh, book that Oliver Sacks wrote. It's the collection of his final writings right before he died. It was published after his death in 2017. Um, it is a collection of ten essays, and uh, they sort of all deal with different things, different things that he was interested in, uh, and some of the stuff he had like posted. He had published versions of some of the essays in like magazines and the New Yorker and other stuff had been published before they made it. The final versions made it into this book. But all of them have this sort of uh, theme to them, the, the way that Oliver Sacks would think about the world as a naturalist, as a neuroscientist, and how he would always go back to his past experience either as a child or the past experience of other scientists and uh, researchers and understand that discovery and science and stuff no matter how we're often portrayed in like uh, in Hollywood and TV as like there's all these eureka moments and all of a sudden the world changes overnight because a scientist in a laboratory came up with this amazing idea that was going to change the world. Like that's not the way that it usually happens or hardly ever happens. It's uh, mostly this just churn this gradual slog of grinding and then running into dead ends and then someone has a little bit of an insight and then you go back and work the problem again and you work the problem again and it's you everyone is solving little bitty fractions of the problem at all different times in history at all different places in the world and only after enough time has passed and enough information has been shared do we start to get these more put together pictures that show this sort of true um, nature of reality that there is sort of this it's not subjective there is like an objective reality that is going on all the time that we can then seam together from all of these previous experiences and everything that we've learned um so it's not a it's not these grand aha moments um like we'd like to think um it's it is just this this terrible grind (laughs) well it's a grind but the the model of science i don't know you know compared to say the renaissance or something some sort of enlightenment period but the uh, past hundred years of science, not not including every every breakthrough, you know, maybe the polio vaccine's a little different. But uh, my example is like Watson and Crick. Those two guys thought they were like gods on earth. They were like, <laughs> "You morons could not figure this out. It is so simple." And it's funny because like they didn't figure it out. They were staring at it for years. Yeah. Um, but they. Like my freshman biology class, the professor had had, I think it was Watson visit um, his class one time. And like the, you know, he's like, any questions in his very snobby British accent. (laughs) Um, And a student was like, you know, how do you work uh, towards discoveries and things like that? And he essentially told this 18 year old, you're never going to discover anything in your life. Like you... (laughs) 
having to ask that question means you don't have the will to discover something. And it's just like, <laughs> dude. <laughs> How unscientific of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a, you know, maybe that was Crick. I can't remember if it was Watson or Crick. Uh, don't sue me. Um, but they're public figures, right? I can say whatever I yeah. want about them. Um, so it's it's not... Not great. Even I mean, no, I won't bring that up. Never mind. <laughs> well, I, I think it's I think it's important now, not just in the light of like the way we view the world, and like we talked about last week with worldview and expanding that worldview so you have a more empathetic understanding of other people's plights. Yeah. But also just you know when with relation to science and the pandemic, I think there's this great misunderstanding especially amongst Americans that has to do with science and which they think that science at some point they got pitched the idea that science was somehow uh the truth the big t truth like whatever mm. science tells you is the truth in when this house we believe in science right but that's science has never proclaimed itself to be the the truth Science is just a process, and that's the process that's described in this book, like mm -hmm. the the slog of how many years and how much observation and how many data points you have to really um, gather in order to have a true understanding of something, in order mm -hmm. to get your sample size big enough to really understand what's going on. And not just that like time scale wise like you have to expand your mind to understand that these things don't happen in you know a 10 year period or in your lifetime or in yeah. you know the generations of your family's lifetime these are like you almost have to start to understand things on like geologic time <laughs> and and that should really be the illuminating fact here that this is all just a process to find the objective truth and to reality. It is not the thing that is telling you every time there is a discovery in science that this discovery is now the 100% truth that cannot be argued with whatsoever. Yeah. The beauty of the scientific process is that it changes as we gather more information. So... That it, and it's not afraid to say, oop, we're changing our recommendations based upon this new information that we have that now shows the picture to be this. And I think that's the beauty of it. That's why I love it so much, um, mm -hmm. because it's not some sort of dogmatic, steadfast, uh, special knowledge that was handed down from some being uh thousands of years ago that is rigid and cannot be argued with or contested and <laughs> the rigidity <laughs> of doctrine uh, is so funny because uh, i saw on twitter this morning somebody was sharing like a facebook group of parents that are anti-maskers and one of them had posted quick can somebody please share from scripture a reason that masks and vaccines are bad <laughs> and it's like <laughs> It's so perfect because these people's minds are made up already and they retrofit religion to it. G give me uh, that give me that Isaiah Old Testament verse where he's railing on vaccines. 
Yeah, something about pigs. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's what's great about science, and I think the point that this book also kind of makes, as you're describing it too, thank you for doing so. Mm -hmm. Um, Every single person is kind of doing their own science too. Like you wouldn't call it science, but it's almost as if your conscious reality is a sort of science. Mm-hmm. Like you have all of these data points you're bringing in as we were speaking about all of the senses, you have all of these ways to perceive the world and the universe and you're inputting all of those and your brain is able to decode it all. It's like that the vibrating thing on your back where like for deaf people, their brain can decode it into language. Mm-hmm. Um you're able to input a ton of data into your brain, uh, which is also itself created from the universe. So the flow of science, the flow of American imperialism really started at the Big Bang, you know? (laughs) It's like just the natural evolution of physics. (laughs) And so it's very funny that we have, I mean, you're turning me into a determinist, um, (laughs) that uh, we have these perceptions of the universe but honestly it's just the flow of atoms at this point um so it's kind of it's weird because it's consciousness is something that's so odd to and i think the book points out too that it's not necessarily i think your mutter got a little knocked off um consciousness is not something that's like new to people but the concrete study of it is sort of new yeah like using mri scans and everything like that i think even the book talks about sort of the actual um evaluations of sort of conscious awareness the real study like neurological study of it only has been going on since the 1950s so we're talking about you know 60 to barely 70 years of anyone studying this as more than just a, hmm, this is an interesting sort of behavioral phenomenon. Because you had uh, some guys in the 18th century that realized that there were uh, sort of delayed reactions between uh, your conscious movement and your sort of reactionary movements. Um, and you, But those were always just sort of like, oh, interesting, sort of interesting observation here. Uh, right. No real way of like working backwards and trying to figure out what that was. And kind of like we've talked about with um, fusion energy, like they had great ideas for fusion energy in the 1950s. But because they didn't have like the imaging and supercomputers available to actually know what was going on with all the reactions at the smallest level and model those things out in order to really see what was happening in the subatomic level... Like, they were limited. They could only kind of just do the limited uh, fusion reaction type of experiment they could do, and they couldn't actually extract any data from it because they didn't have the equipment. It hadn't been developed yet. No one had come up with those tools yet to extract the data from the experiments they were doing. So that's sort of the idea of science. You know, you look through history, and many people have had ideas 
you know, hundreds, thousands of years before they become part of sort of the cultural awareness of a society. But there's just no way to really fully decode it or fully understand it because you don't have the tools at which to do that. All you can do is just have sort of this empirical observation and then have a hypothesis about it and then talk about it in like philosophical terms with all your friends at the bar. Like that's kind Mm -hmm. of the only way you could discuss it. So things move along. Um, And in this book there, like I said, it's 10 essays. Um, The first one is on Darwin and Oliver Sacks being a naturalist really stoked on Darwin ever since he was a little kid. And um, he explores Darwin as uh, what if sort of this alternate reality of Darwin really focusing as a botanist rather than just an evolutionary scientist for biology and uh, animals. Um, Because Darwin early in his life uh, really did focus a lot on plants but botany at the time was considered more of like a, it, not not a thinking man's science. It was like uh, the science of like people who do catalogs, you know, just kind of mm-hmm. identifying different features of plants, writing them down in catalog form, drawing, you know, little stencils and sketches of all the little parts of a plant so that we can get all this stuff down and organize this information, but no, not really, uh, no real like, oh, this has an evolutionary implication or, ooh, this has, this must mean that there's some sort of, uh, co-development with other species for pollinators. And none of that was even thought about. Like everyone Mm -hmm. just thought plants, they've got male and female sexual parts. So they just reproduce asexually. That's the way it is. And we've all, God created all the plants and that's all the plants we have. So that we're just doing our glory to him by cataloging them. (laughs) No, nothing else to see here. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's funny because, uh, botany today, any botanist I've ever met, uh, definitely smokes weed. Like it is just, (laughs) that's like the science for that's how you get into botany <laughs> yeah i mean kind of it seems yeah. like it at least the students <laughs> that were like really gonna take the botany class like the four thousand level you're like what are you doing it's like i gotta learn how to make a new strain or something I'm well i would say i would say <laughs> i've learned a lot more on my own because i was interested in from smoking weed interested in like what the cultivation process was like so i think even though like in uh like fourth and fifth grade and uh life sciences like you learned about like seed germination and pollinators mm-hmm. and cross-pollinating mm-hmm. and stuff like that you know, that was just book learning from elementary school it wasn't until like later in life when I had this totally other just interest when I started digging in was like oh now I understand what germinating means oh now I understand yeah. what cross-pollination is oh you can do hybrids oh now I understand how this works <laughs> you know it's like dealing with plants though is such a it's weird because it if you have a scientific or like an artistic perspective on it it's different but also the same it's it's a very cool kind of feeling uh like i we during covid started just kind of growing some plants and now like i myself have grown jalapeno plants from seeds 
and it's starting like the first jalapeno is like growing mm-hmm. and it's you know it's insane to me that all i did was put these in dirt and make sure it was moist moist enough for like the seed to like get water back into it and start working and from all of my biology classes i understand the process of it growing but it's so rewarding to see it happen in real life like you know i have an aphid infestation i'm like oh what do i do with this and like <laughs> I'm, i don't want to throw this away like i've grown it for so long so okay get some like soapy water and just spray it yeah but then you got to like add more water to the soil because you don't want to mess up the soil you know it's like you can have both perspectives of it and it's it's really a nice nice science it's not just cataloging so if darwin had pursued that further who knows what would have happened obviously uh dr Sachs was very interested in trying to figure it out but it's such a different path yeah um but one that you can observe you can see the difference like he notes i think like is it the opening story of the book um where his mom was telling him about magnolia flowers Yeah. yeah um and I was like, oh, that's crazy. And then I looked up what a magnolia flower looks like. And I was like, oh, we have magnolia trees like right outside oh, of yeah. our door. They're all and over I never the place. knew. And we got huge beetles all the time. And I'm like, what are these beetles? Like, I haven't seen this many beetles. <laughs> but magnolia trees developed before bees existed. Before so butterflies, they're... before any flying pollinators, really. Before moths, before there's... Yeah. Yeah. So they're pollinated by beetles and they don't have like strong smell. They don't have bright colors because those things had no need to evolve. Like the they point out these things don't happen and then somebody comes and fills it. A flower doesn't think, oh, I bet it'd be really useful if I had bright colors, then I could have some bees come along mm-hmm. if bees don't exist. <laughs> right, right. And you don't get like all the different orchids that basically mimic the looks of the different pollinators they have so that they look like they're the sexual reproduction partner of the insect that they specifically want to pollinate it. Like that's, that is like co-evolution, two things moving up together and then filling in each other's niches for each other and that Mm -hmm. becoming the way that it is. And, you know, Darwin had an interesting point about this, too, um, from his early botanical studies, was, you know, he, after he had gone, you know, in his 20s on the U.S. Beagle tour around the world and done the finches and seen the Galapagos and everything, when he came back to botany was when he was, like, starting to really understand that this is the exact same process of natural evolution that I've discovered must be amongst animals because you also have to remember like Darwin's going on his in his 20s on the beagle to these um, voyages and he's like a devout Christian he's a creationist he's not Mm -hmm. like that's the accepted method of thinking about the world at the time so it takes him years of observation and asking, starting to ask questions like, well, if it was all created, then how does this happen and how does this happen for him to come to this sort of natural evolution understanding that he later portrays um, in, his, in the 1850s in his books. 
And it's only after doing all that that he comes back to botany and realizes that if plants were just purely asexual, we would have only had one plant. And then the world would just be like a bunch of clones of this one plant. There would be no diversity of plant life anywhere. You would never have and you wouldn't have insects that work with plants and you wouldn't have all of this diversity of life so there must be some kind of evolutionary thing that's going on not just with these birds that i observed that were isolated on these islands from each other in the short term there must be some very long incredibly slow process that is going on here beyond what i've even just encountered on my voyages Mm -hmm. and that's sort of the problem with consciousness in science because uh, each scientist only has really ingrained a frame of reference for their own life and their mm-hmm. own real conscious life, you know? So it does obscure a lot of what could actually be going on. Uh, and it's it's really impressive that Darwin was able to come to these conclusions, um, but really almost sat on it. <laughs> yeah. Like, he, he didn't publish it right away. He I think he waited almost like 10 years to publish On the Origin of Species, and he only published it because he got a letter from another guy that was approaching the same conclusion of evolution and was asking Darwin, hey, what do you think of this? Like, I've kind of been thinking about stuff, and this is the way that I've seen things, and isn't it kind of strange, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I think it was Darwin's wife was like, yeah, you got to publish this or else <laughs> Someone's like, gonna take this guy's going to, yeah, which again is not great, not a great outlook on it. I, I think they were friendly, like the two scientists. Um, I don't think he felt like Darwin was like, no, I'm going to get the money, uh, but I can't remember. Um, but it's kind of weird, too, that the this book, like, opens up so many kind of thought experiments for me because you start to then think like, well, do these ideas, like scientific achievements and ideas do happen a lot of times concurrently across the globe. Mm -hmm. Um, And people reach similar or same conclusions from different angles. But then you start thinking like how how does that happen so you almost it's almost like another realm of i don't want to sound like i can't remember which greek philosopher it is that thinks like ideas just kind of float up in a space oh, okay. and then like yeah, yeah. our brain comes down and grabs them but it almost feels that way that the evolution of ideas and concepts is something that naturally evolves too along with human progress Right. And it can also be the other way, too. Like the last essay in the book shows, like uh, there was a whole idea for a heliocentric solar system, you know, like over 2000 years ago. (laughs) Like (laughs) it, it was pretty understood, you know, in Athens, like this was the idea put forth that oh, the sun is the center of the solar system and the earth is a thing that goes around that and the moon is a thing that goes around the earth. But then I think it's Ptolemy 
like says, hey, what about this uh, geocentric idea I've got? And look how complex it is. It rivals the complexity of Babylonian star charts and planet mapping devices. And I can predict all these things based upon my very complex model I've created with the Earth being the center of the solar system. And that's what everyone believed for like 1,500 years. (laughs) (laughs) Like you were on the way to the right idea. And then like... You, then you had to take so many steps back before you got back there again. <laughs> right. I mean, it's um, it, it comes about in so many different ways. Science is just a nice, clean one. Uh, but these things happen in every walk of life, you know, politics and beyond. Um, and it's sort of like is interesting that competing ideas and changing ideas occur uh but are segmented by time Mm -hmm. because our it's very odd that time time plays a huge role in this book there's like in almost every essay he speaks about uh time and these like patients he worked with but it's it's something that exists we know it exists uh from our perspective yeah um uh, as something that's concrete, like a, you know, like we were talking about last week with Voyager, how they showed that the amount of time they use is like the, you know, switching the oscillations of hydrogen. That's something that occurs. That's like a physical, physical understanding. Time does move for that thing. We yeah, can that is a natural that. clock. Yeah. There's a natural law to time. There's a the physics of time exists throughout, you know, every being. However, the perspective of time can be different. Yeah. And so it's almost like, you know, do we see the same color blue? It's like do we experience the same second? Uh because I know when one second goes by, we both can, you know, clap our hands together or something uh, on the one second mark. But for me, that could be taking away slower time. It could feel for you like I'm taking a year to clap my hands. But we both agree on this one time frame as right. being a second. So it's time really jacks up like the segmenting and understanding of the flow of ideas because for whatever reason our human brains have to segment things yeah yeah the second the second essay is entitled speed and then the la- the next to last one is the river of consciousness which is the title of the book but like those two especially are really in- entwined and that like those mm-hmm. are the main ones that I kind of want to talk about those cuz those are my favorite two essays in the book um <clears throat> the speed stuff is really interesting because first, it's like, have the realization in your head that it wasn't until the early 1800s that anyone had any idea that you could take still images and create motion from them. <laughs> like, yeah. like, no one had this. No one could even think like that. Like, so how much of our minds in less than 200 years how much of our human experience is now this somehow an analog for what our visual perception is and what our sense of time is because we've 
watched movies and television shows and Mm -hmm. we've seen film reels and our idea that you can put a bunch of still images in sequence together and run them run them sequentially through and that will give you the sense of motion even though it's not actually motion you're just seeing a lot of still images being flipped in front of your face at a at a certain speed 24 frames per second for film or 60 frames per second for your you know 4k tv or whatever um but that like that serves as such a great analog for us to understand consciousness and the way our brains work but imagine being devoid of that analogy <laughs> for mm-hmm. most of human existence and then having to also have these thoughts about how do I know that what's going on in my head is the same thing that's going on in your head like how how do I know that I'm not having some crazy unique experience that no other human being is having or how do we know that every human being is having somewhat of a similar experience and I think that's the other sort of interesting part of the evolution side of it is that you find that humans, we've evolved to sort of this sweet spot of the speed of our motion, the speed of our thoughts, the re- the delay and the reaction time between our conscious awareness and our reactionary awareness. So he talks about stuff like... Uh, everyone's had this experience where you're in a public setting, maybe making jokes with your friends at the bar... And the, you know, everyone's trying to one up each other. So the joke flies out of your mouth before you've even had time to think about it. And the first time you think about it is after the words came out of your mouth. And suddenly you're mortified because you're worried you might have offended someone because you said it before you were even aware that you thought it. Mm -hmm. And like that is a thing that is universal to human beings. Like there is this delay between you know, 400 milliseconds before you're consciously aware of pretty much anything going on. We've talked about this a lot, just like you're working on a delay, you're watching a movie of your life all the time. And um, so we've evolved this sort of sweet spot, like everyone kind of has that delay, that same time delay. Everyone has sort of the same speed with which they, they, if they had to throw a punch, you know, that everyone sort of has the same reaction speed to throw that punch or to defend themselves if they're about to get hit in the face with something. We all have sort of this sweet spot we've all evolved to, but there are certain disorders um, that can happen in the brain that can cause incredibly squishing together of these timescales so that, you know, things get really fast or incredible dilation of these timescales to where these things get really slow. And, so my first introduction to Oliver Sacks was the movie Awakenings, which I think a lot of people probably is the case. Like if you saw the movie Awakenings, I don't know if you've seen it, Eric. I had never heard of it. Um, so it's a movie, I think it was like either late 80s or early 90s, but Robin Williams plays Oliver Sacks. Um, Robert De Niro is one of his patients. And it's about Oliver Sacks' research with um, uh, sort of an epidemic of encephalitis that had been going on in the 1960s and you had all these adult patients that had been afflicted with encephalitis as kids but now we're presenting with these sort of uh, uh, Parkinson's like 
type of uh, type of symptoms or but also this not just like the tics and and like have not control over their body motions, but then they would also seem to be like frozen in time, like they would get stuck and they couldn't mm-hmm. move and it would seem like they were paralyzed. And for a long time, everyone thought that they were paralyzed or they were going into comas and couldn't figure out what it was. And it was only when Oliver Sacks took photos of these patients of sitting of them sitting still for long periods of time and then went back and sort of made a flip book of the photos that he saw. Oh, my God, they're not stationary. They're doing the same movements like scratching their nose or rubbing their eye or whatever. Mm-hmm. The same thing that we all do. But. It's just happening at like a slower pace than a flower unfolding its petals in the morning. <laughs> yeah, the like he was speaking to a patient, um, I think right before he decided to take the photographs and he had had an interest in photography and doing this to see the movement of plants when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. So, again, this idea built upon his own experience, which is cool. And he was asking the guy, like, why were you? like frozen earlier what was going on in your brain and he's like what are you talking about i was scratching my nose so that's where i'm saying like this idea of time how you perceive it can be totally different because the guy was just doing the thing Mm -hmm. he didn't realize it was taking so long maybe he looked up at the clock and two hours had gone by which was the case for some of these patients Mm -hmm. Um, but it's it's the perception of these things, like when you're doing a conscious activity, is really what you base your time on, which is wild. Yeah. And it's similar to the effects like we talked about, like, uh, you know, when you're in a car accident and why time seems like it slows down is that your brain is processing all this information. And to go back to the example of uh, the camera having like 24 frames per second, the sort of thought here is that it's not that it's taking longer to make the movements to scratch your nose. It's that your conscious awareness is not this continuum of unbroken information. It is a series of snapshots that is pieced together just like a film strip. And in these moments, like with these encephalitic patients, um, what was happening is the individual frames of the real of their consciousness, what would be one frame, got extended to so that their conscious awareness of that frame is that singular frame instead of being one part of a 24 frames in a second, that one frame was now 1,000 times longer than the normal frame for a normal human being. So they were still operating at 24 frames per second in their experience. In their head, it felt like only one second was going by, but every frame was actually 1,000 times longer than it needed to be. And so that's... Then you got to get into like the weird conversation about knowing what we know, what we learned about from the brain in our previous episodes, about how much is operating on expectation and this sort of, uh, we are mapping out all of the possible future scenarios in our head, you know, 10, 20 seconds into the future all the time. That's the way that our brain is operating. And then 
when you know that ball bounces out in front of our car and a kid runs in, into the street to chase it because we had imagined that could one be one of the thousands of possibilities that happened we're able to react in a split second even though our conscious awareness wasn't even aware a kid ran into the street until after we had stopped the car um so and he talks about this with uh like olympic sprinters like olympic sprinters their best reaction time is just barely sub 100 uh, milliseconds after the gun is fired however they don't actually their consciousness didn't actually hear the gun get fired until they're already five steps down the track after they left the starting block <laughs> which is crazy to think about because essentially their brain is false starting because it's expecting to hear the gunshot so your <laughs> your brain because it knows the gunshot's about to happen is like oh I gotta go I gotta go I gotta go I gotta go and it so you go and then you're running and then your brain's like, oh, yeah, the gunshot did happen. Good thing I timed that right. It's like an after effect that you were aware that the gun actually actually fired because your consciousness, the the you that you think is you didn't hear the gunshot when you were standing in the sh- in the starting blocks. <laughs> it's funny because uh, uh, in high school, I ran hurdles uh, for like my first two years. And when you run the 110 hurdles, which I liked, they also force you to run the 300 hurdles, which I hate. Everybody oh. hates. Um, and I remember, like, it was pretty common almost every single meet that we went to. One of the kids is like, I think I'm just going to false start. So, like, I don't have to <laughs> have to run this because um, then, you're, you know, you're disqualified. And I remember one time we were getting ready in this kid beforehand, like, we're all kind of stretching getting ready to get in the blocks. He's like, I I think I'm just going to false start. Like, I'm so tired. And the gun goes off, and we don't hear a second shot. So that means everybody started correctly. And that kid ended up running the race. And I was like, what happened? He's like, I I meant to, I thought I was going sooner, but I timed it right. (laughs) So he still had to run the 300 hurdles. (laughs) I promise my kind... Consciously, I left before the gun went off. I promise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what bad timing, you know? Because uh, you got to make it believable. Otherwise, your coach will be really mad. Right, um, right, right. <laughs> we needed those two points. Uh, yeah. Um, but that's it's the same thing that we talked about when we in the baseball physics episode, how like mm-hmm. you never actually see the ball if you're a batter. But because you've taken, you know, hundreds of thousands of pitches and batting practice your mind has developed an expectation for the flight path of a ball and whenever that flight path sinks in with this uh, projected future expectation of what the flight path is going to be whenever those things sync up all of a sudden it feels like slow motion like it feels like oh my god the ball is spinning I can see the seams it's slowly coming towards me I've got all the time in the world to think about this when you don't, and that's not really what is happening in in real time, but because you've primed your brain with all of this future expectation of what could possibly come at you, um, now you feel like the world slowed down and you're making a conscious decision to swing when it's really you're not. Like you didn't even know the ball was thrown until after you heard it hit the bat. <laughs> yeah, it's just the observing of time and how 
things are different for different people is amazing. I found it really interesting that some of these patients, too, would not move slowly, but would move quickly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's that was hard for me to imagine um, that somebody who's dealt with this, you know, virus in their brain causing damage long term is able to move faster than like people can expect. And he had to take photographs and slow them down to show that their movement was just as accurate as if they were moving at, you know, what you would consider a normal speed, like throwing a ball or something. They're just moving super fast. Um, just weird because for them too, <laughs> like one of the patients didn't, he say like he could count the wing beats of a fly Yeah, for him. The flies were moving slow. And yeah, this is a thing that wasn't just with the encephalitic patients, but was a common thread amongst patients with Tourette's. Um, oh, okay. And because like Tourette's was sort of also a side effect manifestation of the encephalitis, which, you know, got him onto the speed fastness aspect. But then when he later studied other patients with Tourette's, you know, he, he found that there was this sort of involuntary incredible quickness um so like uh they had a experiment set up where a patient had to just kind of without thinking about it in a relaxed mode like quickly move your hand forward and press a button and pull back and so there was like a series of buttons so you had to like have accuracy with like what button you were going to press um and patients with Tourette's if they were just in a relaxed state and you told them to do it they would do it um, at like three times faster speed than a normal person could do it with any kind of accuracy. However, if you ask the person with Tourette's to now try to slow down so you do it like more deliberately like the way a person would, uh, where they would have to start using their consciousness to control the movement, they couldn't really do it. They got really bad. When they tried to slow down, they actually lost accuracy and dexterity with reaching out and pressing the button. Um because they were no longer tapping into that part of their brain that just did it, like just did it so fast, you know, before they were aware, which is, you know, the other side of the Tourette's coin is the outbursts and uh, tics and um, and saying saying words that you might not want to say. Um, and so he does go into an interesting part in the in the book where he's like, it seems like being faster and being able to like see the flapping wings of a fly so that you could catch a fly by its wings with your fingertips. That seems like that would be a trait that would be chosen for by evolution, right? It seems like that would be an advantage over like the normal slow everyday human who can't do that type of stuff. But just like being way too slow and lethargic has its downsides, being way too fast and bypassing your conscious awareness has a lot of downsides too. Whether that's saying things in a meeting that, you know, you don't, you wouldn't say if you actually had thought about them and, you know, maybe getting fired or, or something like that in a, in a basic case to being like, you cannot stop the urge of trying to dart across the street in traffic like a squirrel <laughs> because it just come it comes on to you so strong that you just go and 
your mind doesn't do the extra work to be like, okay, stop. Let's think about what the consequences might be if we do this. You don't have that consciousness to override those impulses. And so for all the speed you might get, you lose that overriding governor on all your other impulses. And that is a huge negative or drawback from an evolutionary standpoint, which is why being super fast isn't chosen for in the human species. Yeah, it's something that you can certainly see the downsides for. Um, and when you compare that to like the other patients that saw things almost in like a still frame, mm -hmm. it makes it even like scarier because they would have maybe not similar urges, but they would be like, OK, I'm going to cross the street. And then when they're in the middle of the street, suddenly a car that was at the end of the block is right in front of them. Right. Um, so it's this difference, this perspective of everything going on is so uh, possible. So it, it can be warped in such a way that causes, you know, such a strange sort of perspective on the world. I don't know how else to describe it because it's it's something that it causes everything to be super unique mm -hmm. to that person. Yeah. The, and it's something that, go ahead. The motion blindness stuff was fascinating to me. Like I've heard of motion blindness, you know, they talk about it in Jurassic Park, uh, T-Rex can't see you if you don't move type of thing, which we talked about later that that's false. T-Rex could see great. Um, but the, uh, I've never heard about it like an actual phenomenon in human beings. Like this is a real thing. And so some people have it, you know, to the point where it's it's not like they see the world as a bunch of still images, but they kind of see as like a, a, a long duration photograph or something. So like all the motions kind of blur together. But in the most severe cases, and uh, the, I think the the patient's case in Oliver Sacks' uh, book, they called her LM. Um, her case was such so severe that she experienced only the ability to see things that were stationary. So, like when she, her example is like when she's pouring a cup of tea, it looks like a frozen glacier of tea pouring out of the spout into the cup. And then it will own in what she thinks is an instant, like a fraction of a second, she'll then realize, oh, there's a puddle of tea all over the table and it's spilling onto the floor because she had been overflowing her teapot or her, her teacup. Um, and like that is just nuts. <laughs> like I'm just to try to imagine what that must be like to where like you're not aware that like a, you can hear a person, you could be having a conversation with a person who started talking in front of you. You never see their mouth move. It looks like you're just looking at a still image of that person. And that person could walk all the way around the room to where you could hear them behind you, hear them to your left and to your right. But in your mind's eye, your conscious experience, it just looks like the person is a still image still standing in front of you. That's wild. <laughs> right. It's something that you can't imagine you know you like how do you even live life that way it's it's so complicated um you i would i would think that you would almost have to like uh become comfortable with a blind lifestyle like you have to yeah. really 
get in tune with your ears, really use that to like be able to know the distance of moving things and understand that that car is not parked stationary on the horizon. It's moving towards you at, you know, 40 miles an hour. And so you don't walk across the street right now. You'd have to like really adapt your other sensations if your visual system had been impaired to the point where you were you had that severity of motion blindness. But they also talked about how in both her case and the encephalitic patient's case that would get stuck in time, how music was a great sort of uh, liberator from those different states of consciousness because music has like the rhythm and the time built into it. And as you hear it, that would sound distorted if you were stuck in a frozen state of super slow, 1000 times slower than normal conscious awareness. Like, so the music, if anything, especially if it's songs that the people knew before they had, had the disorder that is able to speed the mind back up and be like, Oh, oh, let's get back on rhythm with, with life here. Let's get back on what we know. I know that this song is supposed to feel like 100 beats per minute. And right now it feels like 10 beats per minute. So we need, we need to speed up our brain here in order to make this song sound correct. And it's just an interesting thing where different stimulations of different parts of your senses give you clues to the um, objective nature of reality. So even though you might have a visual perception of reality that is severely distorted, you can bring the objective nature of reality back online by relying on your other senses in order to fix that or or to reset it so that you feel normal and in tune with the rest of the rhythm of the world. Yeah, we certainly feel this like in car sickness and everything. Yeah. That your brain is trying to bring in this other information to like correct you. <laughs> so I guess maybe that's maybe that's kind of a feeling of it of like, you know, reading in a car or something. Um that but on an auditory level, I don't know. It's just so <clears throat> weird that these things have also probably like existed in humanity Mm -hmm. uh for so long but just were kind of ignored like you were saying the i think at the final chapter they talk about um or final essay talk about ideas lost uh scientific ideas lost to history because it's just not what people continue to like talk about or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, so this experience is probably one that people had for, uh, uh, thousands of years. Like with, I mean, he spoke about it in regards to like migraines and how he worked with a lot of patients that got migraines and it turned out that was it like 10 or 20% of them instead of like migraines are described sometimes with beginning with kind of an aura uh, like a, a halo of light or something that you kind of see. And I think it was 10 to 20% of patients didn't see an aura. They saw like detailed geometric patterns. Mm. Um, but he was like, if it's this many patients, how come there's nothing written about it? And he found that like, uh, like 1,500 or 2,000 years ago, like some Greek person had written describing these geometric patterns in patients with 
like migraines, mm-hmm. uh, but it was just something that people didn't follow up on. So these unique experiences continue to like flow. I don't know how this really relates to like the river of consciousness essay. Um, but it, for me, it feels like these things, you know, it's almost like these things have always existed. Um, we're just getting to the point where we're describing them kind of like consciousness has always existed, but we just don't haven't had a way to describe it that well. Yeah. Uh, scientifically. But yeah. In, in a way, if consciousness is the universe evolving a way to be aware of itself, just like we talked about at the beginning, it's the series of uh, explosions and, uh, and different events that happened from the, smallest levels of a hydrogen scale all the way up to every element that is in the universe that makes up all the things in your body that causes all the chemical reactions in your brain like from the big bang to now human consciousness is the evolutionary result of the universe evolving away to be aware that it exists and so thus describing consciousness as a human being is almost a, a, a it's it can feel like a fraught exercise like uh you're 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 trying to describe the outside of a house from but you only lived inside the house the whole time you know uh it you can't divorce yourself from your subjective conscious experience in order to have a study of consciousness because you yourself are utilizing your consciousness to study the consciousness. <laughs> so there, there's, there's, there is sort of this uh, circular type of thing that you have to overcome, um, you know, worried that you're going to accidentally open a Pandora's box and break your brain if you think too hard about the way your brain works. Um, but I think that's just sort of the way that evolution is, like, we're getting more information and the more information that's out there, this special organ inside of our head is figuring out better ways to decode that information as we go along. Um, And then like my only other real big point that I loved about the book and that big takeaway was that even though, Oliver Sacks had had the experience of loving Darwin and falling in love with that as a kid, falling in love with the idea of taking photographs and making flip books and figuring out, oh my gosh, plants have motion. They're, that's very slow, but if you speed it up to see it, you can see that plants have a motion and a life and they're working with gravity. They have a behavior pattern just like animals do. That probably makes sense why we share, you know, 70% of our genes with plants as well. Um, But it's only after you, he does those things as a child, then understands some of these things um, with relation to speed and conscious awareness with the encephalitic patients in the 60s. And then the test with the different patients with um, Tourette's. Only then can he go back in time in his brain and then have the thought experiment of what if I was an observer, but my consciousness was like from a rock's perspective, like I would be, my perception of time would be so slow in comparison to what I know that I would actually see 
forest rising and falling, you know, almost like the tides of the ocean. And I would see, I would never see the movement of any animal because they'd be faster than like bullets. We wouldn't, it, they, we, you wouldn't even see the blur of the existence of human beings because it would be so short of a time scale. But you would see this incredible environment that's moving at a different time scale that looks, you know, like it's interacting with itself, whether that's the plants or the oceans or plate tectonics, the volcanism. Like you would see this whole thing unfold before your eyes in what seems like a normal relationship of time. But it's hard to ever ima- even have the ability to imagine that if you don't have the other experiences that he had, you know, earlier on in his life to be able to go back and have that thought experiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's one thing too, like if consciousness is sort of the universe growing and evolving to be able to consciously recognize itself, I still feel like uh, I should hold on to the evolutionary perspective that that's not the end goal. That's not right. something that was planned. It's from not the designed beginning. like that. It's that's no. that's the 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 suitableness that has happened with the organisms that have developed in the pressures that are specific to this planet that we're living on. Right. But it's very cool to, to then consider things from a rock's perspective or a tree's perspective uh, or a raccoon's perspective or whatever, uh, because once you can do that, then your brain starts working uh, and, and pulling all of these things together so that you recognize the fact that it is all one stream. It is all one river of mm-hmm. consciousness and awareness. And your ability as a human to put that perspective shift for yourself can give you the ability to understand, well, if I'm part of the same exact thing as this you know, avocado tree that I'm growing, then why would I put up a barrier between me and, like, my human neighbor? Yeah. Why would I feel that there's difference between uh, me living now and a Sumerian living 6,000 years ago? Like, it's... Those things are in such short scales that you can really draw it all together and understand that there is this connectedness between all of these things. And if there's a connectedness, even if you have a determinist sort of outlook, then you can still think, well, as best as I can, I'm going to try and help, um, you know, n- not do harm or something like that. I don't mean to be yeah. taking like such a Buddhist perspective <laughs> from the book, but I think it is. I think there is a Zen. There is a Zenness to this whole thought process um, of one. You realize that the interconnectedness of everything, but the natural sort of progression of the logic is that there's also a supreme insignificance to your individuality, <laughs> and that. While I guess that can be depressing for some people, I find it incredibly reassuring. Like that, it it uh, it's it gives me warm fuzzy feelings 
because it's just sort of that awe-inspiring thing. Like the first time when you ever you were a kid and you laid out in your front yard and you saw the actual uh, sort of hazy cloud of the band of the spiral band of the Milky Way galaxy that's going over your head and you started to just have that first, oh my gosh, this shit is so much bigger than me type of feeling. Um, I think that's important that everyone needs to have that feeling and not have it in a way that uh, gives them like the a false sense of humility or gives them the sense that, man, it's like th- this whole amazing place was made just for me, a theme park just for me. <laughs> it's yeah. not like that at all. <laughs> it's like you you are an offshoot of you are you are a fleck of paint in the theme park that got painted onto a thing to keep it from rusting one time. Like that that's what you are. You're you're not the person that's riding the rides. So I, I that's I don't know that that's one of my sort of takeaways from it all and I think it's good to one have that understanding because it's good it's good for your mental health to understand that you have very little control over a lot of things so don't get worried about over all the things you can't control but then at the same time once you learn that you learn that there's a lot of people who have even less control over very basic parts of their survival um, all over the planet and maybe we can do things because they don't have control over it. Maybe we can create a situation where things work out better for them too. And um, that's not saying that you have like the control to command all of the the power of the universe in order to change someone's life. But through pedagogy of the oppressed and things like that, we learned that this whole learning process is an actual progressive revolutionary method of being a human. And the more you learn things, the more you're able to shape what those future expectations are going to be down the line. And while you might not be able to control all of the factors that ended up that caused you to be where you are, and you might not be able to control all of the internal factors that caused you to behave the way that you are, Neither can anyone else. And so it's up to all of us to kind of work together to deal with the fact that we're in a big situation, you know, kind of in in a in in the defeatist terms, floating on a death trap around a around a fusion bomb, just trying to make it to the <laughs> next day, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it also certainly for me, uh, points out how there's it cruelty like the way to describe cruelty of certain policies is it, like cruelty is the perfect word <laughs> to describe mm-hmm. them because there is no need and it is extremely cruel for things like homelessness to exist because if you can then take this perspective of we are all connected okay that's great then if you take sort of the determinist uh, perspective like everything is just atoms flying through the universe uh, ultimately I'm insignificant um, then you like a lot of people 
can kind of hear that in the wrong way right. of then thinking like, well, okay, so it doesn't matter what I do at my job. You're right. Nothing matters. Um, Burn the earth. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, or like, you know, I'll be fine. Uh, it doesn't matter if I take this project or not. I'll still have a house. I'll still have all the nice things. No, the way the system is set up, it's you're, you would become homeless. So then it's like, well, then there is some level of activity that you must be doing in your perspective so then why would you allow other people to fall through the cracks right uh you know so it's uh that's that's the thing it's not um the people's fault themselves that they've fallen through the cracks it's that the system has put cracks in their way right uh for them to fall through we created a system that gives us the illusion that we have way more control over everything than we actually do, which then gives us also the illusion that all the successful people are doing really good at control and all of the unsuccessful people obviously have personal failings that cause them not to be in control. And when none of that is actually what's going on, it's a lot of it is just luck, fortuitous nature, who you know, where you were born, what your socioeconomic background was before, what your parents had before you, uh, your religious status, your race, like all of those things weigh in way more than any personal choice or of or exercising of willpower that you might have had. So creating a system that gives the illusion that all of that willpower is what separates the winners from the losers and the havers from the have-nots um, gives us all of this false sense of reality and this false sense of significance. Um, and that's really what I'm trying to say is that <laughs> maybe don't feel as significant and then you won't actually think that you did. You were the reason that you have a nice house in the suburbs and two cars and two dogs and three kids and all of that. And then you won't actually think that the person who doesn't have those things is some like personal failure that is somehow less of a human being than you are. Yeah. And it's very interesting because if you can take, you know, you know, like the short story, the egg, mm -hmm. um, love the, love that story. Um, I feel like most people have read it. That was like a very popular internet thing, uh, you know, 10 years ago. Um, very Reddit, Reddit heavy. Mm -hmm. uh, but just even, you know, that I would have to say likely not true, that uh, every living being is like, it, the essential story is reincarnation exists and uh, like the narrator has died and gone to like some sort of next plane and is having it described to them that reincarnation exists um and whenever you're reincarnated like the universe or the earth or whatever has always existed that way and you're just placed into another body so um the person comes to the realization that um so i was just you know me the tax attorney and yeah your next life you're going to be you know uh 600 uh like CE uh, peasants farming in, you know, the middle of China. And then they realize, well, that means that I was Adolf Hitler and also all of the people that he persecuted and killed. Mm -hmm. So it's it comes to this realization of like, OK, there is some sort of connectedness between people. 
Whether or not that's true, I doubt it is, um, it certainly can start to help you understand that this connectedness of everything does actually exist. So whether or not you think you're reincarnated into somebody else um, or the same life force, like that conscious understanding doesn't matter because we are all technically the same life force from like the Big Bang and then the evolutionary pressures. So it helps draw that conclusion to a nice like point that there should be, you know, no reason to uh, harm other people. I don't know. I I feel like I keep going back to like this Buddhism kind of stuff. (laughs) I had like a, an insanely like vivid, uh, I was not asleep, but I was just thinking about it like this conversation between two uh, reincarnation believers in sort of that same perspective like the other day. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them with an Eastern bent and then one with a Western bent. And um, the the Western bent sort of reincarnation person was saying to the – this is all a conversation in my head (laughs) – was saying to the other person – you know, if you were reincarnated and you had some sort of choice, why would you not be reincarnated like me so that you could walk uh, walk and talk among the Western civilizations that don't necessarily believe in this, pers- this perspective um, so that you could convince them? You could wear their clothes. You can, you know, walk around yeah. in a suit and present yourself nicely to show everybody this perspective exists. And then the Eastern person retorted, um, well, if you could choose to be reincarnated, why wouldn't you choose to be reincarnated like me to be fully committed to this lifestyle mm. in hope that people can learn from your full commitment? Um, so the West, like the a, Westerners always want to be evangelical about it, don't they? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but that can that comes about in so many different ways, like like we we're talking about at the top with Afghanistan. Um, wanting to be evangelicals for capital. Uh, it's it's something that exists outside of necessity for humans. <laughs> yeah. The thing that is necessary for people is to recognize the interconnectedness of all people. And through learning things and understanding the history of science and the river of consciousness and art, um, you can start to see that all of these things have just been a flow together so there's no need to turn into lizards <laughs> and you know hate somebody else yeah i think that's a excellent summary um so yeah again i didn't know where i was going with that it so. worked it worked <laughs> uh the the book is the river of consciousness by oliver Sacks. rest in peace um it's 10 essays you know he's got some other ones in there too that we didn't talk about he talks about yeah. what the the perspective in the life of a worm and of plants must be like, you know, he imagines what their conscious experience is like. There's a whole section on uh, Freud because Freud, before he got really into psychoanalysis and psychology, was one of the, you know, uh, burgeoning members of uh, neuroscience. He was really into neurology and trying to understand the brain as a system of down to its you know basic parts before he got 
way more into behavioralism and stuff like that. So there's, you know, another sort of what if Freud had just stuck with his early ideas on neurons and like kept with it. You know, like would we have understood a bunch of this stuff way sooner than we did because he kind of was in going the right direction before he got into psychology and kind of just left all that on the shelf. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's there's a whole lot of good stuff in there that we didn't even talk about. So I highly recommend anyone read it. It's available, you know, anywhere you want to get a book or listen to a book. It's free on YouTubes and all that stuff. So it's a good one. Yeah. And uh, good job, Eric. Oh, great job to you. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.